Hello everyone, I'm Jamie DiPolo, the Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. Welcome to the latest edition of our podcast. This uh, time we're going to talk about some research news stories that have come out in the last few weeks. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Wojciechowski, BreastCancer.org's Medical Advisor. So welcome Dr. Brian, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. We had some very interesting studies that were presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting, which was um, at the beginning of June. And some of them were also published in journals at the same time. But um, one of the big ones that came out, I know there was a lot of media coverage of it, was a study that showed aromasin, which is an aromatase inhibitor, which is normally used only in postmenopausal women. So this time it found that giving aromasin along with medicines to suppress the ovaries reduced risk more in premenopausal women than tamoxifen along with medicine to suppress the ovaries. Um, and so this is pretty interesting to me anyway because it gives premenopausal women another option um, along if they're willing to do the ovarian suppression. And so what, I mean, in, in terms of, of treatment, Brian, what does this all mean? Well, I think it's important to realize one very important thing about this study, and that is in this study, the women were having their ovaries turned off. Mm-hmm. Okay, they were getting the uh, medical ovarian suppression, which is something that is done quite often in Europe for premenopausal women with breast cancer but it's not something we routinely do here in the United States. And, and why is that? Is there just different research, different opinions? I, I think the research has not been uh, conclusive enough to the satisfaction of most of the you know, leading, uh, th- the thought leaders in the United States to, to really recommend that on a, on a widespread basis. Um, there's also major issues with quality of life when you turn off a, you know, a young woman's ovaries, you essentially make her menopausal. And, uh, and that can really be miserable. Right. Because then of course we have hot flashes and, um, perhaps vaginal dryness. Um, what I'm trying to think of all the other menopausal symptoms. Um, just, yeah. Vasomotor symptoms, trouble sleeping, trouble sleeping, yeah. Sweats at night. Right. Okay. Okay. And, um, but so what's the rationale behind, doing this? Is it is it just to give women another option if they can't tolerate tamoxifen? Or is there some sort of um, protection that uh, the ovarian suppression, in this case, the medicine used with Zolodex, um, is that offering some sort of protection to the ovaries because they're turned off? Or, or? Yeah, yeah it, it turns off the woman's natural production of estrogen. And we know that estrogen tends to feed um, and promote the growth of of breast cancers that have hormone receptors on them. Okay. Okay. Um, and there was one interesting thing too about this study. I know that, um, the results when they were presented, they were looking at aromasin plus Zolodex for ovarian suppression or versus tamoxifen with Zolodex for ovarian suppression. But then there was also another group of women that are in the study, but they didn't have the results yet. They were just taking tamoxifen. So I guess ultimately the idea is they would compare the results of aromasin and ovarian suppression, tamoxifen and ovarian suppression, and just tamoxifen. And if um, 
if aromasin plus ovarian suppression comes out to be better than just tamoxifen, is that, do you think that's practice changing or? That would be practice changing because tamoxifen alone is currently the standard of care in the United States for premenopausal women. And if you can show that aromasin plus turning off the ovaries um, uh, is, is more effective in terms of overall survival, then that would be practice changing. Um, and while it's a very exciting study right now, mm-hmm. and a lot of us are very hopeful about this, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see a lot of doctors changing their practice right now, based on um, you know, based on not not having that overall survival benefit. Okay, because right now it's just showing that it reduced the risk of recurrence, but there wasn't a better overall survival yet. Right, and it's probably because the study is still pretty young. Right, and it was only they, five years, right? Yeah, five years. Okay. And you're not really going to see a survival difference in that time necessarily. So it may be another five years before we really know uh, if there's a major difference. So, you know, while it's a, like I said, it's a very exciting study, but I don't see us changing our practice based on the results so far. Okay. And one other question about that with the, um, with the ovarian suppression, since we're talking about premenopausal women, is there any concern? Um, or risk if a woman wanted to get pregnant after treatment, does that ovarian suppression, um, could that hinder that in any way, or is it no big deal? Uh, No, the fertility should come back after the ovarian suppression is turned off. Okay, so once the Zolodex is stopped after a period of time, then the ovaries start working again and everything should be fine. Yeah, assuming the tamoxifen is stopped as well. Okay, okay, okay. Um, great. So our second study was also presented at the ASCO annual meeting, and this one looked at vitamin D and whether women that had low vitamin D levels had a higher risk of recurrence or worse outcomes with breast cancer. And this is kind of a, another in a series of studies looking at a relationship between vitamin D and breast cancer outcomes And the results have been very mixed. Some studies have shown that there's a a benefit. Women with higher vitamin D levels have better outcomes. And other studies have shown that there's no effect. And this study happened to show that there was no effect. And um, one question I have, and I think everybody has, is the levels of vitamin D that the women had in the study were, I believe, around 27 nanograms per milliliter, which is a a standard vitamin D level. And a lot of people would say that's low. A lot of people would say that they should be in the 40 to 60 range. And so, you know, Brian, what do do we make of all this? Well, I don't think it's clearly established in the medical community what the right vitamin D level is and what level you should strive for uh, when you treat women with low vitamin D, um, you know you will, you will find a lot of disagreement out there. And I know that at my institution we do check vitamin D, and the cutoff is twenty. Okay. So there are some doctors who would say that twenty-seven is high. Okay. So you can see how um, disjointed uh, opinion is right now on this subject. Right, and that's probably I'm assuming anyway contributing 
to the mixed results of the studies because if one group is saying, well, these women have low levels and maybe they're really low and other groups are saying, well, these women have high levels and maybe they're not so high, so the results are kind of all over the map. Right, and clearly we need to do more research to define what exactly you know, should be considered a normal uh, or a low level. Okay, and I know one of the one of the risks that we always talk about with taking vitamin D supplements is um, hypercalcemia, which is too much calcium in the blood. And I know it's a risk, but I also have never heard of anybody being diagnosed with that or having a problem with it. Um, is how how much of a concern is that risk? If say a woman it does have um, a level of, say, 20 nanograms per milliliter, and maybe she's going to a doctor who thinks it should be at 40. Um, is there any risk there if she's supplementing? You know, I don't think there's any major risk at all. You're only going to see that sort of thing um, in someone who's taken it by the bottle. Okay. okay. Really, that would be a, a major aberration. Okay. And I guess I feel like I also should point out, too, that um, I know – a lot of us work inside now. We don't get outside as much, but going outside and being in the sun within limits, um, because obviously the sun can also cause skin cancer, but that's a great way to get vitamin D and you really can't get too much vitamin D from the sun. It, it can just, you can be out there and get as much as you can get and you won't get hypercalcemia from it, correct? That's right. And there are other risk factors to excessive sun exposure as well. Right, right. But- so. Okay, so that's so we're still waiting, I guess, to find out exactly what good vitamin D levels are. Um, I know the in this study they referenced um, the Institute of Medicine put out a study, or not a study, excuse me, a report in 2011 that established this 20 nanogram per milliliter level, but then right away people were complaining that that was too low. So I guess we have to wait until more research is done and we can figure out exactly what a good vitamin D level is for everyone. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, like I said, at my institution, we're checking every woman with vitamin D and trying to get them above that that 20 cutoff range. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's really making a difference or not, but it is hard to see the uh, downside to it. Okay. Okay. And now we also had a a series of articles. I don't even remember how many, I think there were 17 or 18 that, um, was put out by the journal of clinical oncology. And it was a whole special series of articles on pain in people with cancer. And I'm going to let Dr. Brian explain a lot of it, but my takeaway from it in a layperson's term, was that what everybody really needs, if, if someone's been diagnosed with cancer, um, any type of cancer, this wasn't, these studies weren't just specific to breast cancer, um, but what everybody needs is really a personalized pain control plan because people's perceptions of pain are different. Um, the way the pain actually physically manifests itself can be different, and what works in one person may not work in another. And they went through all sorts of different treatment. So, um, Dr. Brian, if you wouldn't mind just going over some of the, the various treatments that are, that are available. Yeah. The first thing I want to say is that pain is one of the most difficult aspects of treating people with cancer. And the reason is because there isn't just one kind of pain. There's many different kinds of pain. There's, uh, there's uh, visceral pain, there's neuropathic pain, 
Um, I don't mean to interrupt, but what is, um, what is visceral pain? What does that mean? Uh, so visceral pain is like the pain that you experience deep in your organs um, that can be, uh, you know, that can be very dull. Oh, okay. Uh, as opposed to other types of pain, which can be more sharp. Uh, you know, there's neuropathic pain, which results from nerve damage. Right. There's also mental pain, okay, which is, no, pain doesn't necessarily have to be physical. Okay. Um, and mental pain and suffering often dovetails with physical pain, such that, you know, for example, a drug like morphine may not be always the best answer for someone's individualized pain. Uh, for some people, aspirin or Aleve or Motrin may be better. For some people, it may be an antidepressant that helps control their pain. So a uh, very complex issue, um, very tough to, to deal with. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I think that's why I guess my takeaway was that it needs to be very individualized because if somebody is depressed, that can make their pain more intense Mm-hmm. When compared to somebody who, say, isn't depressed, they may be able to tolerate pain and not think that their pain is a problem um, if they're not depressed. So it's it, there's kind of this whole physical, mental um, entwining, which there is with everything pretty much. But it, I guess in pain, it makes it very difficult then to tease out and figure out exactly what needs to be treated and the best way to treat it. Yeah, pain can, an individual's experience of pain has something to do with not just their physical makeup, but their prior experience of pain, what they've been through in life, their mental status, um, their tolerance to whatever pain medication they're already on. Okay. And I know they talked a little bit about in here um, some sort of alternative treatments that weren't um, weren't medicine. So they, I believe they talked about like acupuncture and I think they talked about meditation. Um, what, what else? Oh, exercises, mm-hmm. um, some laser therapy. Now, have you seen those be effective? I'm not as familiar with all of those things. I am with some of them, but, um, is that something that you've seen women diagnosed with breast cancer use successfully? And I, I guess I ask that because, I could see like, okay, if you sprained your ankle, yes, rehab exercises might be great to help your ankle feel better. But I wasn't sure um, in people with cancer how that might be helpful. Yeah, I've seen women have success with electrical stimulation, the uh, the TENS machine, transcutaneous electrical nerve uh, stimulator. I've seen that be helpful. Uh, rehabilitation, like physical therapy, for example, um it can go a long way to help a lot of musculoskeletal pain, especially that uh, which is associated with hormonal therapies. Okay. Acupuncture, I've seen, I've seen help, but you know, again, I think that patients, ha- patients and doctors have to be open to these things and think out of the box a little bit about pain, and that's part of the reason why they publish these guidelines. Okay. Okay. And I guess, too, one thing we do always stress here at breastcancer.org is that if you are in pain, definitely talk to your doctor about it because there may be a whole host of treatment options that you're not aware of. And if your doctor doesn't know how much pain you're in, um, he or she can't help you. 
So always, always, always talk to your doctor. I know one of the things they mentioned too that can be very helpful is if people start to keep a pain diary, um, which is where they write down exactly what they were doing, where they were, what time it was, how long the pain lasted, what kind of pain it was. Was it sharp and stabbing? Was it dull and aching? Um, what did you do to make it feel better, if anything? And um, that also can be very helpful to a doctor who's trying to decide what's the best treatment for you. Yeah, and the other thing that you might want to consider is seeing a pain specialist. Uh, there's now subspecialties uh, of physicians that, that do nothing but pain management. Oh, wow. And, you know, some of the, some of the physicians do procedures like injections, some of them manage medications and that sort of thing, but that can be useful as an adjunct to your medical oncologist or your surgeon. Okay. And, and I'm assuming, like, if somebody came to you and said, I'm having this pain, it's not helpful, you, uh, your oncologist could refer you to a, a pain specialist? Uh, yeah, if, if, uh, if she felt that was necessary. Okay. Okay. Great. And then um, our final series of articles were also, were they, I'm trying to remember if they were presented at ASCO as well. Um, I believe they were, yes. There was a series of articles on um, childhood cancer survivors. And we know that women who were diagnosed with cancer as children, um, especially, and, these, and then had radiation to the chest to treat that cancer, like Hodgkin lymphoma, um, have a higher risk of breast cancer. But there was a study that was presented that said that women who had childhood cancer but didn't get chest radiation also had about that same higher risk. I believe it's about four times higher than average. And that was very surprising to me because I, I did not realize that. And I'm not sure that all childhood cancer survivors realize that. And what that really brought home to me was something that we say on the site that is if you are a childhood cancer survivor, you really need to have a very, very specific tailored plan with your doctor to screen for all sorts of complications that may hit you in adulthood from that childhood cancer treatment. Right. This was a pretty surprising study for me because I, like everyone else, attributed the increase in breast cancer risk to that radiation that you got to your chest wall in your younger years, knowing that radiation damages DNA in the breast and DNA damages lead to the development of cancer. But this study surprised me because it turns out even if childhood cancer survivors did not get radiation, they were still at a higher risk of cancer later in life. And I thought about this a lot. And I and I, I thought about this lecture that I do every year for physician assistant students at Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It's called The Biology of Cancer, and it basically explains how a normal cell becomes a cancer cell. And the main idea of this whole lecture is that that process, a process we call carcinogenesis, is a stepwise process. And it has to do with your environmental exposures uh, and your genetic makeup how you're born, how you're made. And I think the reason we see that even women who did not get radiation as a child but still had cancer has a lot to do with the fact that the same risk factors that uh, that led to that woman getting childhood cancer can also lead them to get cancer anywhere else in the body at any other time in life. 
Does that make sense? It's mm-hmm. kind of the, it's kind of the milieu that you're in. Right, right, right. So if you if you were to hire if you if your genetics are such that something happened and you developed cancer as a child, that and you're treated successfully, obviously you're an adult now, you're a cancer survivor, but your genetics don't really change so much that that risk would go away. That's right. You know, the same reason you got cancer as a child uh, has probably something to do with the reason you're getting it as an adult. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting and I, I, I don't know that the research could ever be done, but I, it would be interesting to know is the radiation to the chest, I mean, exactly how much does that itself raise risk or is it mostly genetics and the, you know, the environmental milieu that someone's in? Yeah, that's hard to know for sure. Okay. And again, to emphasize in that, what's, what's really important is that you be seeing a doctor who's very familiar with your situation and your medical history and you develop a tailored screening plan for breast cancer um, it's also a really good idea to have a tailored screening plan for a heart disease or lung disease because you may be at higher risk of developing some of those issues because of any treatments that you had as a, as, uh, for the childhood cancer. So um, we, we try and emphasize that on the site. Um, and I think that's all of our studies, Brian, unless there's anything else that you wanted to, to add to that. No, I think that's all I can think of right now. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. We're really happy you joined us this week for our um, research news podcast. Make sure you stay tuned for the upcoming one. It'll probably be in about a month. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Dr. Brian Wojciechowski, for joining us today. Thanks, Jamie. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.